What type of investor are you, value or growth? Of the many factors that may influence your choice of assets to be held within your portfolio, investors have frequently been divided into these two groups. But in a changing world, are these categories still useful or even accurate? Today, we're speaking to Nishar Thakra, a client solutions specialist at Capital Group based in London. Firstly, Nishar, good afternoon. Hi, Jim. Now, tell us, what do we actually mean by the terms value and growth? Yes, so value and growth have behaved almost like a balancing act throughout history. They've moved in cycles with one another, and that's deeply fascinated investors throughout uh, the decades. In fact, many investors have been keen to capture these cycles, which we often refer to as star rotations. But irrespective of whether you have a preference for value stocks or growth stocks, um, A value or a growth investor's job is to determine the underlying value of a company based on its fundamentals and future cash flows. The value investor is is looking for buying opportunities when a company is priced at a bargain relative to the underlying value and future earnings. These earnings are typically based on consensus. A growth investor, on the other hand, is prepared to buy a company even if it appears expensive today, because their belief is that the growth prospects will more than compensate for the current price. So these are stocks which are anticipated to have above consensus earnings growth. But but I thought nowadays everybody wants growth, don't they? Well, you're right to recognise the uh, continued interest in growth stocks over the last uh, decade plus. But I think you can think of value opportunities more like sleeping giants, because you know, on the surface, they seem overlooked because they're, they've been out of market, uh, out of fa- favor by the market. However, underneath this, this layer, these are stable, mature companies which have an established history of paying dividends. So they're often supported by strong balance sheets. The value investor is really waiting for these giants to awaken. And so they're willing to be patient for that special moment when the market catches up with the underlying value. Growth opportunities are more like diamonds in the rough where, you know, these stocks are considered riskier than value stocks. So they've already shown us a glimpse of growth. So they've shown rapid growth. But the the growth investor is very interested in hunting for those rare breed companies which have the potential to offer greater than consensus earnings growth and the firms that typically fall into this camp have greater reinvestment opportunities so we tend to see these pay no or low dividends and when you put this all together i think what you see is that value and growth stocks both pay attention to the fundamentals and the valuations for long-term investment success. But the difference really lies in the journey. And so if I think about uh, how investors access these opportunities, they can either go for distinct investment strategies, which fall into value or growth, or they can go for a blended approach, which is the composition of value and growth stocks. Now, we can't have this podcast without making reference to the pandemic and the associated lockdown. But what what has changed that may contribute to these terms no longer being relevant? I think it's important to note here that it's been a jittery ride for value or growth investors throughout the pandemic because the leadership of the two stars has gyrated with virus containment and, and now increasingly the healing of the economy. 
But I think if we step back into late summer last year, when we started to see the welcomed vaccine news, we began to see a long-awaited value rally. And in this 10-month period to the end of June, we did see growth strike back in three of those months. So it's really starting to raise questions amongst investors around the persistence of these value growth cycles going forward. I think it is important to note here that 10 months is, of course, a short period to reach any meaningful conclusions. So let's extend the analysis back to uh, 13 years ago in in the um, global financial crisis period, where this was the last time we actually saw a value rotation. And And actually, when we look at the results there, we see a similar interrupted pattern where there were at least seven occasions when value stocks rallied, but they didn't quite qualify into a rotation. So whilst I think, you know, what we're seeing today is a more extended rally than the other seven, it's it's tough to know whether this is the eighth one or a, a real meaningful rotation. What we can be sure of, though, is that predicting a willing, winning style or timing these rotations has ironically become more unpredictable for investors. And so the burning question that I think investors need to address is how do they find a more reliable way forward to stay on track of long-term objectives whilst capturing value and growth winners? Now, are these changes simply an acceleration of what we were seeing in the market over the last decade? Let's put the last decade aside for a moment, Jim, because conventional wisdom tells us that value stocks outperform growth in the long run. And and the last century is a real testament to this because in every single economic recovery, value investing has thrived. In fact, if we look at the period from uh, 1974, the index inception of uh, value and growth indices uh, for growth stocks up till the end of 2007, an investor would have earned a whopping 130% relative to a global growth index. Now, when you start to bring in that last decade, so the period following the global financial crisis, the value premium actually drops to 21% at the, as at the end of 2020. So it's been quite a striking difference in, in the last decade. And, you know, I think uh, if we look at what's behind that underperformance, but also some of the extreme valuation spreads, there are four secular forces which really stood out to us. Firstly, value-heavy industries have been in secular decline. Secondly, and of no surprise, digitization has divided winners and losers. Thirdly, industry composition has narrowed. And, And finally, growth in intangible assets has really exploded. So are you saying that there is no longer the need to categorize stocks in this way? Well, what we are saying is that secular changes have meant separating the two, so separating value and growth in a portfolio, have become less helpful for long-term investors because they've created risks. But let me share some more colour behind those four changes that we've seen to help investors understand why. Value-heavy industries have been facing headwinds that are not just cyclical, but also structural. And and the two industries that I think really help illustrate this are banking and uh, energy stocks. And one of the things that I think we observe is that when you get past the cyclical shifts, it's those structural shifts that we're talking about um, that are unlikely to reverse, which create a meaningful impact. So 
Let's look at banks. They've had to navigate not just a sustained low interest rate environment, but also tighter regulation and the rise of unexpected competition in the fintechs. And when you piece that together, that's put pressure on their revenue streams and meant that they've had to prioritize their digital strategies. With energy companies, when you get past the ongoing fluctuations of the oil price, the wider ESG focus within the industry puts pressure in particular on the traditional energy companies to transition into renewables. So the key here with these industries is all about selectivity. With digitization, this goes well beyond big tech because in the last decade, we entered what we call the fourth industrial revolution. So this is the physical, digital and biological worlds converging. And big tech, so the Facebooks, the Amazons, the Apples, etc., have really been the trailblazers so far because they've pioneered these key technologies like cloud computing, um, high-speed mobile internet access and artificial intelligence. But they've also amplified their utility due to their network effects, which we see much more as as we use these technologies in our, our personal lives as well as our professional lives. But once you get past this disruptive phase that we're in, I think we'll begin to see their influence um, in terms of tech infiltrating every industry. And what that could mean is that business models could transform quite meaningfully, not only at company level, but also at industry level. So far, the companies that we've seen integrate this type of technology and transform it as part of their own business strategy have, have all already uh, shown leadership in the market, stock market. And so, you know, what we're seeing here is some of the uh, effect that uh, digital transformation can have. But I think what's important here is that this is still early stage. And the e-commerce market helps illustrate this, where today it's worth around $4 trillion. But last at the end of last year, we saw this represent a mere 18% of global retail sales. So a long runway still to go here for these uh, firms and industries. Now, you, you said there were four particular points. What are the other two changes? Yeah, so the, the next one is industry comp, uh, composition. And we're, many of us are familiar with some of the inherent biases in index constructs when it comes to value and growth indices. But what's important here is that those biases have become particularly heightened over the last two decades. So we've started to see some industries wholly covered or represented by value or growth. Um, let me give you an example where Today, if you look in the value uh, index, so let's say take MSCI World Value Index, 11% um, is made up of banks. But if you look across to the equivalent growth index, so MSCI World Growth, it represents a, a 0.2%. So there's quite a striking difference here. Now, let's flip that on its head. So let's look at tech hardware in MSCI world growth, where today it's around 9% of the index. But looking across to the equivalent value index, it's been below 1%. So you start to get an indication of some of the difficulties when it comes to diversification. But you also get to see some of the implications here, which are that secular trends have become much more important for shaping returns when it comes to style investing. Uh, the fourth one was, of course, the intangible asset growth. And, you know, when we refer to intangibles here, what we're talking about are non-physical assets. So think of brand, employee training, customer relations. Tangible assets are physical or financial in nature. 
What's new here is that intangibles have become a larger component of a total company's assets. And, you know, we're familiar with R&D. This is a classic intangible, which has been around for decades. The new growth in intangibles has also been a different type of intangible, which is organizational capital. And these are assets which tend to be specific to a company and, and quite unique, therefore, in nature. So a really good example of this is Apple, where you know, its iPhone is its most profitable product, but it's not just the hardware that is attributable to its success. It's the clever marketing that Apple applies to entice its existing large customer base to upgrade their iPhone, even when there's not much of a boost to the actual enhancements. So you start to get a sense of not just the importance of tangible assets, but the rising importance of intangibles for understanding company valuations. The challenge here for style investors is that accounting rules don't treat them uh, the same in the same manner. Internally intangible uh, assets, such as the clever marketing we just described, uh, don't fully get captured. And what that means in practice is that the book value and earnings value can become distorted. And of the four reasons that I ran through, this one in particular reveals the cracks within the traditional value framework. And I think it really questions its relevance going forward. Now, if you mean that intangibles and human capital are increasingly important, are you also saying that we will need new tools in the future to assess value? Well, what we're not saying is to throw away the old tools because traditional valuation approaches are are still really important. But what this is calling for is more flexibility in the flat valuation frameworks. Investors need to make newer adjustments to determine true value. And some of the industry have already started to look at this by thinking about how they systematize these adjustments. I think they still grossly underestimate the contribution of organizational capital because Many of these items are not just difficult to measure, but they're difficult to place because they're often not included on financial statements. And on top of that, they require a different approach, uh, which is not homogenous for amortizing and then revenue alignment. So this calls for much more than a quantitative assessment. I think what it calls for is is more of a company by company approach alongside qualitative judgment to really manage some of these idiosyncrasies. And, you know, if we think about our quest here for long term investors, it's it's to find long term winners in a portfolio. And it's this bottom up approach that can really help deepen our understanding of a company's value creation. Uh, you, you use the magic term there of long term. And for the investor who is looking at the long term, where, where do they go from here? So I think looking ahead is probably the most important thing for any investor. And, and the, the future does seem to appear uncertain when it comes to value and growth investing. But I think what we can anticipate is that pendulum continuing to swing between the two stars, which means that separating them may no longer align to long-term objectives or time horizons. So to navigate this foggy environment ahead, I think um, there is something really simple that investors can do to account for this uncertainty, but also the new disruptive forces we mentioned earlier, such as digitization and intangibles. Investors can simply focus on company fundamentals over style, and this, I think, will give them the tools to achieve long-term success, regardless of whether a rotation is here to stay.
Nisha, Nisha Thakra, a client solution specialist at the Capital Group. Thank you very much. Tune in next month for a new episode of the podcast with the Capital Group, Investing for the Long Term. This communication is of a general nature and not intended to provide investment advice or to be a solicitation to buy or sell any securities. Statements attributed to an individual represent the opinions of that individual and may not necessarily reflect the view of the Capital Group or its affiliates.